0: I'm Cinder Niemela, and along with Charlotte Gilmano, welcome to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. I believe the most powerful gifts you can give yourself is time to reflect on your talents and experience, and then have the wisdom to act with confidence and grace. This podcast is for entrepreneurs, leaders, and individuals who want to thrive in work and life. Your journey to being connected and inspired by the world around you starts right now. Today, my guest is James Elfer from London. James is the founder and director of More Than Now. More Than Now is a behavioral change agency that uses science and creativity to transform the world of work. Their mission is to show that when we look beyond short-term profits, we can create a better workplace for everyone. And this is why James and his team partner with clients who share their belief in social purpose. We're here to push the boundaries of what that can achieve. After all, says James, the workplace is not an island. Large organizations are deeply interconnected with our society and they reflect and influence the world outside. They can be both a force for good and an engine for growth. You will find James' bio and links to references mentioned during the show on InspiredWisdom.us. James, welcome to the call.
1: Thank you. Pleasure to be invited.
0: Watching your videos, I can tell how passionate you are about behavioral science. Mm. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you got interested in this.
1: I mean, I guess it was a bit of a slow process, really. Um, I'm sure many people... um, Kind of late 2000s, uh, 2008, I think Richard Thaler's uh, book came out and it was on the bestseller list. So I suspect that many, many, many people read that book and probably saw applications to their work. One of the things I'm always uh, really interested in is just how applicable to so many different challenges uh, this particular science or this or that particular idea, I should say, is. Um, and and I just took it as as far as I could go so I had I had already been working in the workplace challenges in and around the workplace for some time Uh, and and this just gave a spark that I needed uh, at the right time let's say.
0: Mm. So did you uh, what did you do after you read the book then?
1: Um, Well I was I was still working um, in quite a regular role so so there was a there was there was probably a particular moment, I was working for uh, a, a large consultancy, um, I think in about 2012 was where it took off um, for me. And we were working on behalf of this incredible organization, I can't give the brand, but a, a real pioneer of what I would call now purpose-driven business, but probably the, the term wasn't invented when they were founded, uh, but really amazing ethical heritage. And we had gone out and designed this huge leadership event for 500 uh, of their team based all around in the world. And we found this huge glass dome out in Paris. Um, There were peacocks running around outside. We got a a speaker from NASA to come and tell us about how fragile the world looked from space. And and people were loving this event. You know, everyone seemed inspired. Uh, We kind of did the job that we were supposed to do. Um, But this was four years after I'd first read uh, this book, and I've done a lot of reading since. And as a, an amateur behavioural scientist at the time, let's say, there were so many unanswered questions that had just started to make me increasingly nervous. So despite the fact that everyone seemed very happy and pleased and, and keen around me, we still weren't really able to say, we're trying to change this behaviour or this series of behaviours. Um, and more importantly, I would say, we don't know how to measure what difference we're making, what difference this huge event, 500 people flying all around the world, what's it actually doing? And more importantly, how can we compare that with other things that this big, incredible organization could potentially do for their leaders? Um, th- this, as I say, was a serious organization. They weren't just trying to increase profits. They were trying to um, be a responsible business, be a pioneering responsible business, which is what they've done for 25 years. So it felt like we were we had a serious job to do. Um, and we weren't quite doing it as well as we could. But, but what was really interesting to me is no one was unhappy, quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it felt like in order to um, take this further, we needed to start out on our own, start from scratch, uh, and see how it could lead us to doing uh, different things in different ways, let's say.
0: Intriguing, knowing what you know now about behavioral science, what would you have done differently in 2012 with this organization?
1: Well, I think, Sometimes the most interesting thing that we work on the moment is is problem definition so so what challenge are we actually trying to solve here and I certainly don't don't try and criticize anyone because I, I probably did this for for almost a decade but we race into doing things without really working out whether we've got a problem at all you know we want our employees to be more engaged we want our leaders to be better you know of course we do but but what's the issue? And once you have an issue, how are we measuring that issue? And once we've got a measure for that issue, we can see whether we've changed it based on the interventions that we're sort of running. None of those things really existed back then. And, And to a degree, we still struggle to work in that type of process now, because we're dealing with things that are often seen as uh, artful, let's say, or, or still that dreaded word of, of fluffy, and they don't need to be. I think the social sciences, the behavioral sciences have proven that these things can be empirically measured, and, and I would say now uh, that's what we we should be trying to, to do more and more.
0: Mm. So with the example of this uh, organization that wanted to be purpose-driven, are you saying then that you would work with them to really identify the issue that you're trying to solve?
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Why do you think you're not purpose-driven and how will this make an advantage for you?
1: Exactly. And, and increasingly, we're trying to drill down almost instantly. So, so a, a business may well claim to be socially responsib- responsible, and we can quite quickly get into a particular theme. So they, they may say, as a socially responsible business, we see an unequal world outside our walls, and so we want to make sure that we're inclusive as possible inside it. And sometimes when we're talking to organizations, that might be as far as they've got. You know, we, we want to be equal, we want to be inclusive. And we would ask more and more questions. So, so sometimes that means using a negative frame. What, where do you think you're being exclusive at the moment? And have you got any evidence to show that that's the case? Uh, what does your hiring processes look like? What do your promotion processes look like? What do your leadership processes look like? And then we start to get kind of interesting uh, data back or interesting insights that, that won't be unusual uh, to you or any of your listeners. You know, things like, well, our leadership team seems to be 80, 90, 95% white men. Okay, well, what do you think the reasons for that are? You know, is, is that that when you go out to hire a new leadership team, you really struggle to get balanced shortlists? Uh, is it that actually women don't seem to want to apply to these roles for some reason? Uh, All these things suggest different problems. And if we can pull on them a little bit, then the deeper we get into it, the more and more that we can uh, look back to academic literature, which is often very, very precise about the challenges talking about and the potential interventions that can work in response.
0: Mm. I wanted to ask you about disruption. Mm. Uh, It's a word that's uh, tossed around a lot, and I've heard (laughs) all kinds of (laughs) actual horror stories of executives with possibly good intentions, but using interventions to disrupt their workforce. What is the definition of disruption when you're talking about a workplace?
1: Crikey. I mean, in truth, I I have absolutely no idea. And I I think that's probably one of the things that's uh, so so damaging about the word. It gets thrown around and uh, we don't really know what we mean. Of course, disruption can be used to define many different things in many different concepts. Uh, sometimes an organization might decide that its industry is is under threat from all these startups. Uh, sometimes that can be very real. Sometimes that can be a perception. I'm always interested in just trying to uh, ask questions and ask why. Why do you think that's the case? Is, is it really true? Um, sometimes I think... Uh, The great thing about disruption is that people who are talking about it can seem incredibly inspiring and and can seem like visionaries. Uh, And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the term is so popular, rather than it being used uh, in any sort of meaningful and and valid way. So I think like you, I'm always quite skeptical about the term, unless someone is being very, very specific about exactly what they mean and why it's important.
0: Mm -hmm. Going back to that problem statement again.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You
0: know, what, what is the problem that you <laughs> want to solve, and how is this uh, intervention going to solve that problem, rather than disrupting things just to keep things lively and people on their toes? And
1: exactly, and, and to a degree, you know, I don't, I don't mind. You know, sometimes in the world of business, you know, we talk about things like brand and uh, that's a that's a really difficult concept to define and and sometimes brands will take great equity from coming out and saying how disruptive they are actually it doesn't need to have any meaning because it's doing the job it's supposed to do which is making them look good but as soon as you get to things that are slightly more meaningful like uh, sustainability or equality or employee well-being uh, I would want to be really specific about what disruption means why we're doing it whether that's effective as opposed to maybe marginal incremental gains and make sure whatever we're doing is as effective as possible, let's say.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because the examples that I've heard of disrupting the workplace is really harming people. It's adding stress to their life. When you talk about wellbeing, then it's it's perhaps disrupting
1: a yeah. person's
0: sense of well-being.
1: Yeah, with, without question. I mean, I, I mean, I think sometimes because we don't really... A draw and evidence when we do things in the workplace, we can, all, we can cause all sorts of harm that we don't know about. Uh, I think disruption is a really interesting one. You know, leadership, te- leadership teams who stand on stages and say, you know, it's the fourth industrial revolution, everything's going to change. We either need to disrupt our whole market and business model or else our organization isn't going to exist in three years. I'm sure that they are doing that to try and energize their teams. But as you say, I think it can cause huge anxiety and huge stress uh, and a huge lack of control. Because of course, when you're talking about these big macro issues that that leaders love to talk about, I have no control over that as an employee and neither do they. And that feeling of a lack of control can make people really, really nervous in an organization. And I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, The other thing that I think can also do harm is uh, the unfettered embrace of, of technology I often use, uh, as a really simple example, just the amount of instant messages that are sent every day from within an organization. I, I know a big org- tech organization, for instance, that you know proudly says we send millions of internal messages every day amongst our employees. And I think, well, is that good or is that bad? Because I don't think you know. Uh, And I think that idea of being always on at your computer screen, that little red dot in the bottom right-hand corner constantly buzzing, never being able to get away from this constant back and forth is is not only hugely damaging to our ability to do good work, but also damaging to other things that those organizations value, like innovation. You know, innovation is, is hard. You need to get away from a constant barrage of instant messages. But I don't think we think enough about those things
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the nice things about now being on my own is I can turn off my email and my cell phone and it doesn't bother me at all.
1: (laughs) uh, You know, I think I think it takes real work to do that. Funnily enough, one of my New Year's resolutions at the start of the year was to do exactly that, to go on a bit of a digital detox, because I recognize that this digital landscape that we're all constantly absorbed in may not be good for us after all and and those are the times that you know I find most precious you know to a degree I'm happiest when I'm away from the digital sphere but also it's probably when I do my best work as well Mm -hmm. it's just incredibly hard to find and that seems to be getting harder and harder and I don't think organizations help I think they I think they make things worse.
0: Mm-hmm. There are a couple of uh, things that I saw that I was really curious about. One of them is about uh, bias and how you support teams to find their own answers. Can you talk a little bit about what you found that the traditional bias training is not working? And um, what kind of alternatives yeah. do you have?
1: Yeah, you might have seen some work that we did on, on something called the Inclusion Lab. So, so Inclusion yes. is, is one of our, I think the, the thing that's probably closest to our heart as a team. I mean, interestingly, as behavioral scientists applying that discipline to lots of different challenges in the workplace, we, we probably talk most about inclusion, which you will have seen if, if you've explored our website, but it's still mm. the thing that's quite difficult to land within big corporate organizations. And I think that's because people are still wrestling with the answers. Um, and what you'll see out there at the moment is that many, many large organizations are running these huge unconscious bias programs. Um, and it's interesting because for many years, uh, they would talk about the business case, for instance, for inclusion. And it seemed like they thought that if they could explain rationally why organizations should be inclusive, then people would change their behavior, that, that, some, that somehow people were intentionally being exclusive. And if they could convince them that it was good for them and good for their organizations to be otherwise, those behaviors would change uh, in line. And of course, that, that didn't happen. And then there seemed to be this recognition that sometimes uh, we behave without thinking and we might not necessarily be conscious of the biased decisions we're making. And then the intuitive response seemed to be, well, what we should do about that is take people into training rooms, for instance, and explain that this is how our unconscious mind works. And of course, if we can take people into a training room and remove the unconscious bias out of their mind, then of course they'll be able to make fair hiring decisions and um, uh, fair promotion decisions and give people an equal share of voice within meeting rooms. Uh, that is, is a, a flawed idea um, based on uh, the, the insights of behavioral science and, and something called uh, dual system processing particularly. But what's more important than that is that people have, have studied those training sessions Over many, many, many years and over many, many different iterations of the sessions themselves, they don't really seem to change behavior at all. They might change intent. You might have people coming out of those rooms saying, I I never really knew that things were like that. And I never really knew that I was capable of making those decisions. But the idea that that intent changes their behavior three months down the line, six months down the line, nine months down the line, doesn't seem to hold true at all. And that's based on, on a pretty solid foundation of evidence, which is why we, we can sometimes be really frustrated when we see large organizations continuing to roll out that sort of program. That evidence is, is accessible. Um, there are lots of books about it. There are some amazing thinkers, probably who you've seen uh, us quote, like Iris Bonnet out of Harvard Kennedy, that have been um, championing a different approach for the best part of a decade. So, so organizations should have shifted on from this and, and they haven't, which I, I think is a, is a shame and is frustrating.
0: So talk to us a little bit about an alternative solution to mm. unconscious bias training.
1: In uh, Richard Baylor's metaphor would be our, our system one, our, our unconscious mind is, is often uh, what causes bias on decisions made in the moment. Uh, so the idea that you can train it away Uh, In a session and then see that new fairness um, play out across a whole range of different decisions doesn't necessarily work. So the alternative, though, I understand why is uh, relatively overwhelming and can sometimes be a little bit nerve wracking for organizations because you're ultimately saying we need to look right across your organization and we need to be very specific about the moments where that bias might show up. Let's go back to the discussion we were having on problem definition. What is the problem? And an organization might say, well, there seems to be some bias within our recruitment process. Uh, And we would say, well, tell us more about the recruitment process. How do you go out and attract your candidates? Um, What does the job description uh, look like? How does it read? Are you using gendered language? How are you screening these CVs? Uh, What happens after the CV screen? What's the interview process like? Um, The the reality is that each of these processes can hold bias. And we need to uh, think about how to mitigate that bias in every single one of them. Uh, So the motives that you use when you attract candidates to your organization, are are you being open? Have you chosen a motive because the vast majority of your organization is white male and a a particular motive appeals to them Uh, over other types of demographic groups? Um, When you write your job descriptions, uh, are are you using something called gendered language that has been proven to appeal to one gender over another? Uh, And this can continue not just in a hiring process um, but in promotion processes, in any sort of decision about people, even to the degree of who do I listen to in a meeting room, who do I give voice to, um, whose uh, opinion do I value? Uh, more than uh, more than others. Now, some areas of those decisions are easier to look at than others, particularly the formalized decision-making processes. But I would say that's that's the journey that we need to go on. And yes, it's hard. And yes, it can be quite scary. But, but we're talking about equality. It's a big challenge to solve. Um, and it's, it's not, unfortunately, going to be solved in, in training sessions alone.
0: Do you have an example of a company that you've worked with and results that they have achieved based on
1: what they've done? Yeah, I mean, I think because some of this work is relatively early, um, so I mentioned Iris Bonnet, for instance, talking about this for 10 years, it does mean uh, that the organizations that are using some of these principles are still pioneers. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm going to uh, a conference in September in Toronto run by the University of, uh, of Toronto and, and the Rotman Management School there, that's going to be talking about uh, behavioural approaches to diversity and inclusion. And there are some amazing speakers, some of the best speakers in the world, I think, there. Uh, so a lot of these approaches are still relatively new, but certainly what you can find is um, some of these large organisations using some of these principles to show small improvements within specific decision-making processes. Mm. So if I, if I go back to recruitment At every stage, you will have uh, motives being tested, for instance. uh, The Behavioural Insights team here in the UK did some work with a police force out in the States to show that certain motives would appeal differently to uh, BAME candidates and non-BAME candidates. And of course, they might have had an inclination to use the motive that appealed most to the the demographic that dominated their organisation here and now. Uh, But by doing that sort of study, they were able to be uh, much fairer about it. There's an organization called Textio that runs uh, machine learning on job descriptions all over the world and is able to uh, show you where you are using gendered language within your job descriptions uh, and give you prompts for alternatives that are more balanced. Uh, There's another organization here in the UK called Applied who is completely rethinking the hiring processes and whether we should even be using things like CVs at all to be able to not just show fairer processes, but also higher performing ones, more accurate processes. And they're all doing this using the principles of behavioural science and experimentation. Uh, so it's, it's hard graft, um, mm. but but it's certainly out there. And I think now's the time for organisations really to take up that mantle and to continue to, to test and learn and experiment right across their organisations.
0: Mm-hmm. And maybe even governments. <laughs> yeah,
1: yes, yeah. Most, most definitely. I mean I think yes, yes. Let, let, <laughs> let, I think that's a that's a whole different topic of conversation. But actually behavioral science has really been pioneered in the in the arena of policy making. They're far I would say far, far advanced than the corporate sphere. Which which I think is really interesting. You know, the reasons why there are I think over fifty behavioral insights units based in governments all around the world, far fewer over uh, units within within large organizations.
0: Oh, interesting! I didn't realize that. Mm. So, what are you um, most passionate about these days?
1: More and more and more, the uh, the biggest kick I get is about learning new things. And and when I say learning new things, I mean uh, experimenting with uh, with organizations. The, the, the longer this journey goes on, the more that I realize that we don't know much about behavior. We don't know much about leadership. We don't know much about uh, how to change uh, organizations. And we're all on a bit of a learning process. The other thing that behavioral science says that so many of these interventions we run can be context specific. What works for one organization might not work for another, and it might not work in the same way. So we always need to be really clear about the problem that we're trying to solve, but then set up an experiment that allows us to robustly know what we've done and what we haven't. And mm. that means even really small challenges can become really exciting because there's always an opportunity to find out something completely new. Uh, and I think when, when we can encourage people, and more and more we, we insist on this, to experiment uh, properly, and by properly I mean in, in a randomised, controlled way, uh, wherever possible, uh, we get an answer out that is always exciting. And and I think that's what what gives us all a, a bit of a kick here at uh, More Than Now.
0: Oh, interesting. More Than Now. I love the name of your company,
1: <laughs> by the yeah. way.
0: Uh, would say a little bit about how you came up with that name.
1: Uh, I can't say there was much of a process behind it, actually. I mean, it it came from uh, purpose-driven organizations actually, a few years ago that there was a lot of debate between this idea of um, profit versus purpose. So the idea that there's a trade-off between growth, your organization succeeding on revenue terms, on financial terms, and uh, social responsibility. Uh, so I think at the time it was particularly on sustainability, but I would, I would include things like equality and well-being into, those, uh, uh, into that element. And uh, from my perspective, that trade-off is only plays out in the short term. So many organizations will uh, judge themselves on on really short-term processes. So they will judge uh, people's performance on a half-yearly basis, for instance. They might report back to the markets on a quarterly basis. So they almost force themselves into this short-term view. And if you have a short-term view, then of course, these things like sustainability, you know, whether resources are going to run out in 50 years is almost irrelevant mm-hmm. uh, in comparison to your next month's targets or your next quarter's targets. But what I found particularly interesting is the, the more organizations look to the future, the more things like growth and profit aligned almost perfectly with social objective. Of course, you're going to worry about the sustainability of your resources. Of course, you're gonna worry about things like equality and employee well-being. The, the two things go hand in hand. Of course, we're always thinking about behavioral principles. And I think it's easy to make that claim. It's easy to say organizations should look decades into the future. Unfortunately, as humans, we do have to have a have a real tendency to be myopic to to look to the short term, to overvalue the short term. Uh, and I think that means that we find that contrast really difficult. And I was thinking about that uh, and we were exploring that and uh, uh, out came this line of, of more than now. And we thought, why not, why not use it as a brand? And, and to a degree, it's a bit of a nudge mm-hmm. for us. You know, we, we need to make sure that the work we're doing tries to help organizations resolve that. I don't think it's a it's an issue that's that's going away quickly. But I think the more that we can encourage businesses and leaders to make long-term decisions, the more that we can encourage them to make decisions that uh, take equality, sustainability, employee well-being into account alongside their long-term growth. And and those are the sorts of partners that that we want to be working with on a day-to-day basis.
0: Mm, I love that explanation. It's really nice. So to kind of bring this together with the videos that i saw and you were talking about how difficult it is for people to change Mm -hmm. because we've got these quirks in other words and you were talking about the mind space framework how do you apply the mind space framework to a company that has a short-term focus and Mm -hmm. help them to have more of a strategic longer-term focus
1: yeah, that's a difficult question. I mean, I think my, Mindspace is often thinking about how to appeal to things that aren't, don't necessarily fit into our normal idea of rationality. So, so for instance, if I want to help someone or encourage someone to exercise more, and, and I suppose you could, in an organizational context, this might be, be a HR team that want to encourage their teams to focus more on well-being. We tend to think, or the intuitive way to do that is to convince them rationally. If you can convince someone rationally that they should change their behavior, then they will. So if you say, if you focus on well-being within your team, not only are you going to feel better for reasons X, Y, Z, but also here's a load of evidence to suggest that it's also going to make your performance better, and that might make our organizational performance better. So there really is no reason not to have this focus on yourself and help your colleagues for instance uh create an environment of well-being and actually what a behavioral scientist would say is that that sounds very nice but actually what we would might uh expect to see in practice is lots of people having that intent but not necessarily exhibiting the behaviors that we would like to see in practice and mind space is a really helpful mnemonic to be able to show us different ways to compel people or encourage people to change their behavior outside those normal expectations of rationality. So so to give a few examples, um, it shouldn't make sense, uh, but the messenger who gives you this information is likely to have a huge effect on whether you behave differently or not. So a HR team, for instance, giving a message about well-being might be received incredibly differently from a CEO and the leadership team. And their message might be received incredibly differently from peers if you could hear it from colleagues who are like you from around the business. Uh, it doesn't make rational sense if it's exactly the same information, uh, but we would expect it would be received very differently. Uh, the N, for instance, stands for social norms. So uh, we might have a perception that if, even though we believe that uh, well being is incredibly important, we don't really see anyone else focusing on that in our organization so we don't really feel like it's valued or we can spend time on it Uh, social norms would say if we can uh, create uh, the impression or even show people just how important it is to many many colleagues uh, again people will receive that information differently and may be more likely to change their behavior as a a result going back to something i said earlier though we would always say what is that behavior in in the broader theme of well-being What exactly is our intervention that we have designed using the Mindspace framework and how exactly can we test it in context and see exactly how it changes Mm -hmm. um, what people are doing or thinking um, within the particular context of an organization? Mm -hmm. That was quite a long, rambling answer, wasn't it? I hope that I hope it helped.
0: Uh, yes, it does. It it helps a lot. It really does. Well, it is a it's a big science, and I I think one of the common themes is your formula is identify the problem, yeah. <laughs> and then look at some potential solutions to that problem. Try it out, see what happens, and then apply it in the long in the larger uh, context. Which I really liked how you're piloting that.
1: Yes, yeah, I could I could never put it so succinctly, but you're you're absolutely right. When we talk about defining a problem, what what we're really looking for is a specific and measurable behaviour. And of course then a a measure comes out uh, almost immediately. What's the thing that we're trying to change? Uh, Then we run an intervention and when I talk about randomised and controlled, what we really want to do is choose a random selection of employees, run our intervention on them as a treatment group, and then have another random selection of of employees as a control group, and then measure the difference between the behaviours between those two groups. And it's a slight oversimplification, but when we do that, we can kind of have a degree of, a greater degree of confidence, let's say, that our intervention made that difference. Uh, And then we can go out and say, hey, if you rolled out this to the rest of your organisation, it looks like it would make this change. Uh, and that might have a particular return on investment, for instance, or it might appeal to another really important objective that that an organization has.
0: This may seem like a random question, and it probably <laughs> is, but I have a feeling you can provide an answer for me. I find in a lot of work that I do that executive presence comes up. Right. This is what you know. the higher-ups say that, oh, yes, we, she or he is a high potential, but they need to work on their executive presence. Mm. And it seems like this ethereal term that doesn't have any specific behaviors attached yes. to
1: it. Yes.
0: That you could actually measure. And I'm wondering from your perspective, if you've uh, looked into executive presence and if you could offer up any suggestions for behaviors or how to approach that.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting concept. I mean, the, the first thing is, uh, there is a lot of bias around how easily we can be swayed. You know, there, there is very little correlation in lots of contexts between what I would call confidence, and, and maybe you could translate that to executive presence, and our perception of someone's competence, how, how good they are, how competent they are at whatever it is they're doing. Um, and actually, there's not much link between those two things, hmm. uh, which, which, is, which is interesting in and of itself. The second thing that I would say is that I would immediately be concerned about things like executive presence because we have a uh, an expectation of what a leader should look like and should sound like. And of course, when we're judging other leaders, we, we kind of have that in mind, some, sometimes non-consciously. So sometimes when people talk about executive presence, I would worry that they're actually thinking about other things or or making judgments on other things like this person doesn't look like a leader or sound like a leader that i have seen before this doesn't look like the sort of leader uh, that is in my organization and that's exactly the sort of judgment that i would always push back against uh, i'd be more inclined to press those people who are talking about executive presence and ask them what exactly it is they mean and also whether we can find any evidence to show that this idea that they have of executive presence actually converts into strong leadership. Um, there may well be that evidence already but, but it's, um, uh, I don't know of it and actually I, I would have a, a number of concerns about the, um, about the phenomena.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. So, is it something that you run into in uh, the UK?
1: Yeah, I think you know. Think, words like gravitas, presence, uh, uh, are often um, are often talked about, and of course, they have enormous influence within organisations and, and have enormous influence in our in our personal lives as well. Uh, and there are a number of different. Um, uh, books, for instance, uh, workshops that focus on improving people's uh, presence and perception. I haven't done a huge amount of work uh, within that field, but I do have concerns about judging other people on, on what our perception of that, that presence might look like for, for the reasons I've outlined.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. That was really helpful. I appreciate that. Have you traveled very
1: much to the US? Uh, no, not at all to the US, in fact, not in my adult life.
0: One of the reasons why I want to interview people from different countries is just to get a sense of, you know, what are we doing that's maybe similar? What mm. are we doing that's maybe different? What's the business environment like in the UK, you know, from your perspective?
1: Ah, mm. oh, how interesting. Um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, 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 see, I see very similar things uh, from the UK and US. I have to say that My world seems to be so narrow at the moment that I wouldn't make any judgments uh, on UK business versus US business. I could only make judgments on behavioral science in the UK and the US. Mm. Um, And and actually, they're in very similar positions. So it feels like that this is a a new, uh, young discipline that is facing a lot of tradition. And I I think that's on both sides of the ponds. So to a degree, I think think UK and US business models are are often the same. In in fact, it kind of goes back to that idea of executive presence, that many of the decisions that we make within big corporate organizations are based on overconfident leaders, let's say, making overconfident decisions and not necessarily really challenging themselves and each other. And I think Mm. behavioural science does provide a lot of challenge, not just to those individuals, but also the traditional ways that we do things, the traditional ways we run interventions in the workplace. And it seems like the US and the UK share the same challenges in applying that discipline. So I I think it would be a stretch to make any big grand claims about that, meaning that, that these are similar countries in terms of organizational culture, but, but, but that's, that's what I see.
0: Mm. Yeah, thank you for that. One of the trends that's going on uh, in the U.S., and I think it's really, it's been going on for a little while, but it's really um, catching some steam now, is organizations wanting pe- to help people find their purpose, their individual mm-hmm. purpose, so yes. that they can bring their best self to work. Yes. And are you also seeing that in the U.K.?
1: Yes, Yes. definitely. So this, this um, idea of, of purpose-driven business really seems to have taken off uh, in the past few years. I think it's really interesting. In fact, my, my professor at the London School of Economics is a guy called Paul Dolan, uh, and he wrote a book called Happiness by Design, which talks about uh, the difference between purpose and pleasure, uh, and how both of those uh, intertwine, I guess, uh, towards our own sense of happiness or, or subjective well being um, as as uh, an academic might put it, and I think that that these are really interesting principles again, I, I sometimes worry when organizations use that term in a different way. sometimes I also worry about organizations who talk about helping employees find their purpose
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, again the the trick or the challenge for me would be what problem are we actually Mm -hmm. solving here? And I suspect that many would come back and cite a lot of statistics to say, there is a worrying trend for people to find their work um, meaningless and Mm -hmm. and pointless. And typically big corporate organizations, as they will often do, rather than addressing that negativity, will flip it into a positive and say, well, let's let's help everyone find their purpose. Mm. Actually, that's a big question to ask someone and, and you can imagine not that many people may have thought about that sort of question. And if you ask someone what's your purpose and they aren't sure what sort of answer to give, that might feel like quite a belittling process. Mm-hmm. Uh, it might feel like you have to invent something, up, something on the spot and you feel uh, a bit like a fraud. Uh, actually, when, when we look at um, purpose from an academic perspective, sometimes it might be nothing to do with social value in an objective sense, we can get purpose from all different types of things. If, if, our, if we have autonomy, a sense of control over our work, mm-hmm. if we feel competent in our role, even if it's not necessarily contributing to some huge macro problem or trend, and if we have a sense of, of belonging within our teams, then we can feel purposeful we can we can feel intrinsically motivated and and i'm drawing on a particular theory called self-determination here Mm -hmm. and sometimes i think those much simpler answers might be more productive you know how can we give people control how can we make them feel competent um and that the work that they're doing contributes to something bigger and how can we make them feel that rather than working in a really isolated sense that actually um uh, they are joined up with colleagues maybe all over the world. And obviously, the larger the organization, the more difficult that becomes. Uh, I think if you can, if you can uh, address those three pillars, then mm-hmm. you might find people feel like they have more meaningful work. I think, again, going to them in workshops and saying, let me help you find your purpose mm-hmm. m- may be great, but I would go back to the principles. What's the problem? How are you measuring it? And is that intervention really making the change that you want to see?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good. Uh, one of the examples that you gave in your video was, you know, why don't we make decisions uh, sooner that mm. will benefit us? And one of the examples you gave was you're in a job that you hate. Yeah. <laughs> or you're unhappy in your job. Yeah. Why don't you make a decision? And so I think that employee engagement survey results certainly point to dissatisfaction in the workplace. Yes. But to then go to the person, and from what I'm hearing you say, and just thinking about uh, the approach to employee engagement, that we're going back to the individual and saying, well, hey, you know, you're responsible for your level of happiness and engagement. Mm. So, let us help you by helping you find your purpose. But it's a little bit naive, I think, if you're not addressing uh, the leadership issues and some of the other issues that are Defe- that, definitely that
1: and, I, and i think sometimes things can be far far simpler so for instance you, you you asked about examples from organizations i saw and i haven't i haven't seen the data behind this but in the i believe the washington post a gap was reported as working with some social scientists on a randomized controlled experiment within their stores that simply gave more control to the shop floor assistants around their rotor, And just by giving that sort of autonomy, it seemed like not only was there a stark, um, or a large increase, I should say, in employee engagement, it also meant that turnover dropped dramatically, which also I believe that the figure that was quoted that the stores that were in the treatment groups improved their revenues by 7%, which was an incredible outcome based on such a simple intervention But it it all came down to that one simple um, principle of autonomy or control. I think that many organizations may have run things like that in the past, but because they didn't test it properly, they had no idea what the outcome was. So they may well have not rolled it out any further. Uh, What GAP did that was very unusual was work alongside social scientists, was design an experiment to see what the effect of this tiny change was. Uh, And it seemed like that had uh, a big effect on their um, on their employees. Now, the the question is, would those types of tiny changes make more of a difference uh, than a big grand idea about uh, helping people achieve their purpose? Uh, once again, I I don't know, but I would really encourage organisations to explore it as a research question rather than making any any assumptions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, that's so. Insightful. Thank you for that. (laughs) And really good advice. So for the person who is unhappy in their role,
1: Mm.
0: uh, what advice would you give them?
1: Well, sometimes, uh, I mean, firstly, I'm not sure I'm the right person to be giving any advice. um, Really, I think everyone has to kind of make their own choices. And sometimes I think there's a bit of a an overconfidence in the value of your advice but but maybe I'll draw back on self-determination theory to say it seems like that people are higher performing and it seems like people are happier at their work if they have control over what they do if they feel like they're good at their role and that doesn't mean they don't have more learning to do you know that should be constant but it feels like they have some competence in the work that they do and it feels like they're part of a team that they really enjoy so i think you can twist that back um to yourself as an individual and ask those questions do, do i have those three things in my in my job and if i don't can i get them know, if you have an overbearing manager who's never going to give you any autonomy and who makes you feel small and that manager isn't going anywhere and for whatever reason you can't move anywhere in the organization to get away from that person um, then that would suggest to me that you need to to move on um and i think those are those are far more practical things um uh, to think about and to question all the time than to um almost beat yourself with with um some sort of grand purpose that that may come or or may not mm-hmm. so i would always say and it's not it's certainly not my advice i'm i'm simply drawing from the literature Think about those three pillars and think about how they apply to your work. If you don't have them, think about how you can get them. Um, And if you can't get them where you are, then think about moving on.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. That's the kind of advice that I give people is to exercise their voice, because this Mm. is an opportunity for you to ask for what you want. And knowing that you have nothing to
1: lose, really. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that's right. And there's there's actually some amazing. So so Adam Grant actually is a uh, incredible organizational psychologist, a behavioral scientist out in the states, in in Wharton, uh, and he has uh, this great uh, quadrant of when you're in those type of positions, what what can you do? And and one of them is is voice, and obviously that's the the most um, uh, active choice you can make, I suppose, uh, when you're in a position that uh, that you don't like. And there are four others um, which I can send to you and you can share with your listeners if it's of value. You can kind of go through one by one um, and decide Mm -hmm. what option you're going to go for. And of course, one of the options is you say nothing, you do nothing, and you just put up with it. Uh, And by seeing it there, it kind of pushes you to to see, that's not not really the option. That's not the option that I should take. Uh, Even though, as you've already mentioned, in many instances, in many organizations uh, around the world, there are people who just seem to put up with it, which is a shame.
0: It is, it is. And I've, uh, have you ever been in that position where you've um, put up with it?
1: Um, no, not really. I've always had the, the luxury and I think luxury is the word, um, mm-hmm. luxury uh, privilege, if you like, to, to be able to move on when I want. And of course I'm in London when you're in a city like this, there are always many, many role opportunities. So, so I always like to caveat these sorts of discussions, where I do appreciate that many other people aren't in, I don't have that position of luxury, of privilege, and sometimes do have to put up with things. Um, in 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 my case, I've always been able to uh, move on when I can, and 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 maybe in recent years that's because this idea of self-determination has been more prominent in my mind i'd, I'd like to see it gain more prominence um, just in terms of public knowledge uh, there, there are few theories that seem to hold weight across many different contexts self-determination theory is a is an idea about human motivation that shows up all over the place in schools in children uh, in adults working in organizations those three pillars just seem to be basic psychological needs Mm -hmm. Um, and yet, you know, with the billions of pounds spent around the world on motivation and and performance in organizations, you don't, you don't hear about it that much. You don't, you don't hear organizations, um, draw upon that decade's worth of literature in that area to help them design interventions that are going to be effective. And and again, Mm -hmm. I think that's a missed opportunity.
0: Yes. You know, that's such a good point. And it occurs to me for the person who is very unhappy and in their role to take one of these elements, autonomy, competence, belonging, and contribution, and just work on one at a time. What part of your job do you actually like? What are the skills or the talents that you're bringing to that? And how can you do more of that in your day? And then, you know, who are the people that you like, but because you know, you don't make the time to spend more time with them. How can you build a team of people where you do feel inspired and motivated at the workplace? So you can actually take each one of these elements and begin to develop a plan.
1: Mm, it's such because a good self-determination point. Self-determination
0: is required for flow.
1: Yes, yes. And, and I think the idea of approaching it from an individual basis it's really interesting and actually a really good challenge for me and and our consultancy as well. I think often, probably because we are a consultancy, we think, okay, we can help organizations improve the performance and well-being of their employees with self-determination uh, theory. But actually, you're so right that it might be interesting to try and get to individuals to say, you know, this this is how you should think about your work. This maybe is even how you should think about your life as well. And maybe you can address these three things, not in a big, dramatic way, but in a small way. I think everyone can think a little bit about autonomy in their role, competence in their role, um, and belonging. And even if they can't move on, they might be able to improve those things a little bit. And in a sense, I always like and always encourage the idea of doing little things you know, big, big things can often seem scary, you can often put off big things. But the idea of making small changes over time, Mm -hmm. I think is far, far more productive and accessible for people. Uh, And actually, those those three pillars seem to fit that perfectly. So um, that's a really uh, interesting insight that, that we'll think more about.
0: Wonderful. Thank you for that. Just in terms of where you've taken your career, what's one thing you know now that you wish that you knew earlier?
1: Um, It's an an interesting frame of the question, because actually, from a perception perspective, I I know less, or I I know that I know less (laughs) now than I thought (laughs) at the beginning. Again, you you go back to to privilege, you know, sometimes I look back at the the early part of my career and think, God, I I was trained almost as a white man. To, to be overconfident, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to say things, to think I knew the answer when I didn't, to overvalue my opinion, to speak up when maybe there are other people in the room who had far more experience or expertise. If I've learned anything, it's just to, to doubt myself way, way more and, and to always ask questions and be critical. It can be really liberating when you realize that we all know less then, then we think about these things and and i've been able to meet you know some of my my uh, heroes in the last year as bonnet um, from Harvard was one and I was just totally inspired by her propensity to say i don't know to questions I don't, I don't know the answer to that wouldn't it be great to find out wouldn't it be great to learn wouldn't it be great to find an opportunity to research that question wouldn't that further our knowledge I thought yeah that's that's the sort of uh, attitude I suppose those are the sorts of principles that I'd like to take on more and more and more and more so so in a sense mm. the less I realize I know the better.
0: Mm, that's wonderful thank you for that I don't know why but it's reminded me of a time when I was when I joined Ernst & Young early on and uh, I was one of the older consultants mm. um, kind of a midlife crisis. I got an MBA and joined Ernst & Young. (laughs) Most people, you know, travel around the world, but I'd already done that. And uh, and I recall that one of my attitudes was, well, I know what I know, because I Mm -hmm. hear myself talk all the time, but I don't know what other people are thinking. So I was always quiet in meetings, and I just wanted to learn from everyone around me. Yes. And, uh, my partner at the time, he called me into his office and he, he said, I'm not really sure, uh, if you're qualified for this role because you, you know, you're so quiet. I don't know yeah. what you know.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and what's so interesting about that is in comes executive presence, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. so you can, you can imagine around that table, there is the, um, uh, uber smart person who's just got an MBA and just joined and is reflective and interested and curious and wants to know what other people know and then there might be other people around the table hugely overconfident giving their opinions certain that they're right and who do we deem to have this concept of executive presence and is that the right thing you know I would say no no you were, you were exactly right to um, to do exactly what you were doing and of course because we know so little about some of the concepts that were no doubt being discussed around leadership and productivity and, and engagement, that's exactly the right approach. Which is where I guess all these things intertwine. The corporate world and particularly the consultancy world uh is weakened by its by its overconfidence. Mm. Oh
0: well, thank you for that. I, I um I appreciate that and you mentioned I one last question before I let you go you mentioned that uh, some of your heroes or mentors or mm. people that you respect in the field can you name a few of them
1: yes I mean it's interesting I I, um, I was thinking about mentors and coaches and actually I've never had anyone personal throughout my career and and maybe that's that's a reflection on on me to a degree I, what what's what I love most, I suppose, about the behavioural science community is, is that it's such a community. It, even though people have no idea they're my colleagues, I think of them as colleagues or mentors or people that I'm inspired by. L- Laszlo Bock, for instance, has been a trumpeting uh, data-driven behavioural science approach from Google now at Humu for years. Uh, I've been inspired by his work. Mm. Um, Iris Bonnet mentioned three times, I often do in almost every conversation I have. Um, professor out in Harvard, Kennedy, uh, completely changed the way I think about inclusion. Um, her book, What Works Gender Equality by Design, um, anyone who's working anywhere near that space, essential read, I guarantee it will completely change your perception of the inclusion industry. Um, Daniel Kahneman, for instance, Richard Thaler, mm. now Nobel Prize winners. Um, both uh, on the grounds of behavioural science incredibly inspiring and, and it might seem strange to cite these people um, but it, it feels like, because I've been following them for, for so long, that they are the people that I would look to for, for ideas and, and their progress over the last even five years and ten years, all of them has been incredible, lots of peers within that community as well. I, it's always amazing when you meet a behavioural scientist, you have common ground even when they might be working on completely different projects. I'm constantly impressed and uh, awed by other people day in, day out. And I think that's because of the, the community that I'm in.
0: Mm, well, I can hear the excitement and passion in
1: your voice.
0: <laughs> it is. And, and I can see it when you also present. You're a very good presenter. If you have some other uh, links to videos that are out there, you, please
1: send them to me because
0: I'm sure people will be very interested to see them.
1: Thanks for the kind words.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. It has been just such a pleasure to talk with you today. And thank you so much for sharing your insights on change and behavior in organizations and both organizations and then personally and sharing these resources with us. I really appreciate it.
1: No, it was so nice to be invited. And actually, I I, I don't get to talk like this too often. So it was a real pleasure. And, And thanks for being such an open interviewer as well. Uh, I was a little bit nervous, but but you made it nice and easy. So thank you.
0: Oh, you're so welcome. I'm Cinder Niemela, and you've been listening to the Inspired Wisdom Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope these conversations illuminate your path to your highest potential. For show notes and links to resources mentioned during today's episode, please go to inspiredwisdom.us. You can also follow Inspired Wisdom on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Until next time, design a fulfilling and prosperous life that engages your talents and passions.